Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Gieschen, and today I'm talking to Mary Childs, who is the author of The Bond King, which is her deep dive into the world of Bill Gross and Pimco, in a book I really, really enjoyed um, because it sort of balances Bill's rise and what made him great. I always thought of him as somebody who made um, pretty bold, contrarian calls, and uh, in, instead, um, Mary kind of highlighted a lot of the, the nuance, a lot of the smaller things uh, that he did that added up to structural, structural alpha um, over time. And it also goes into the, the end of his, his tenure and the end of his uh, career at PIMCO, where there's a lot of ego, there's a lot of these um, tensions of a founder um, who is becoming sort of divorced from the institution that they built. It's a, it's a very interesting transition, and I think that's challenge, one that's challenging for a lot of firms, and especially in this case, because there's just so much ego and desire for fame. And um, yeah, we get into all of that, as well as some background, like Bill uh, starting out uh, card counting and getting a, a, a sense for, for risk in Vegas. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a ton of fun. Mary uh, is uh, really well-informed on the bond market and, and the players there. I hope you enjoyed too. As always, none of this is investment advice. Um, yeah, always do your own research, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's go. Well, Mary, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate uh, it, and I'm so very excited to talk thank about you your book, me. which I really oh, enjoyed. Right. Thank you. And it's, and it's heavily marked up. I've got all these stickers coming <laughs> out of it. I've got all these notes. And I just have to start off. I, I, was, I was just going to ask you this. You know, I was, I was a little bit surprised um, just to me, both Bill and, and Pimco, right, they come off as, it, it's not a great look overall in the book, right? There's some, some plus, some minus, some, some light and shadow, but, but I was just sort of surprised that people, and, and Bill maybe in particular, would, would give you kind of a lot of access and talk to you when there's clearly, you know, major blemishes on the story. So maybe talk to me a little bit about what that process was like and just... You know, convincing yeah, them. I think a lot of it was that I simply started as a beat reporter covering PIMCO and, and Bill Gross when they were, you know, aligned and when Bill still worked at PIMCO. So when he left, I, you know, my full time job suddenly became finding out that the, the true story of what happened, the real story behind the scenes. So, you know, at that point, I was already pretty well sourced at PIMCO and, you know, with their alumni and the like people in the Southern California finance world. So I had kind of and and I had covered credit by that point for a long time. So I like knew what they were the, the waters they swam in. And I think that was helpful because I already, you know, in journalism, if you're staring at a closed door, you just need like something. If you need to get through that door, you have to you just have to come up with like a little piece of information to to get that person to open that door to kind of crack it open where that can be you know a little piece of gossip that isn't doesn't end up being true but it's like a story that everyone's talking about and like in and of itself that gossip's useless to you as a journalist of course you're not there to spread gossip or to you know try to write it down as a story if it's not true but usually these things you know smoke and fire so you can if you're asking somebody hey i keep hearing this ridiculous story is this what happened you know, you have a little nugget of truth in there. You don't know what it is yet, maybe. Or you think you have, you know, some percentage of true. And the person that you ask or the people that you ask, you're like, is this how that something happened? A lot of people actually just want to help you understand and don't want to see the story misrepresented or don't want to read it, you know, in the news and be like, oh, my God, this is all wrong. You know, it's just that's a frustrating experience. And as a journalist, I'm grateful for that instinct, of course. So a lot of times you have little scraps of information like that. Sometimes they're good information. Sometimes they're not. and 
you know, you go in to you just try as many people as you can. So I had that experience where where I had been building this mosaic already. And so to some extent, it was already too late when I went ahead with the book proposal because I had done this big story at Bloomberg News. I knew the basic contours of what had happened, like the door was already open. So, you know, at that point, I think Bill also had a real vested interest in getting his side of the story out. I think I didn't help him in a lot of ways that he hoped that I would. You know, I took way too long for one thing. Um, I think I wrote it. I don't know. I think, uh, you know, he ended up writing his own version and his own memoir, which came out two weeks before mine. So obviously I didn't hit the mark in his view. And and that's fine. We're all entitled to our own opinion. and, And, you know, part of journalism is being okay with your subjects, not being happy with the final product. That almost is inevitable. Um, but I do think that like, you know, it was it was a dental appointment to get some of these people to talk to me to get, you know, certainly people within PIMCO who were afraid of the firm, you know, coming after them for talking to me, people outside of PIMCO who were afraid of the firm coming after them for talking to me. And and it was a matter of just being like, look, I have all this information, you know, I've collected all my little pieces and pieced them together and formed this this enormous mosaic. And it got to a point where like I was telling the old heads like what had happened. Like they were like, oh, yeah, I think in 1992. And I'm like, that was 94, sir. Like <laughs> there was definitely a point where like I knew more than they did. And it was like, OK, I think I got to stop reporting <laughs> and go ahead and write it. But it, you, it was yeah, it was a matter bases. of just yeah. like collecting and collecting and collecting and then and at that point you have so much information that it's in their interest to be like okay you have it 95 percent right at this point it's just this nuance is wrong this is not how i would frame it this is not you know this is in the full context whatever that may be yeah and i think that i mean i think that really comes through in the book i mean there's so many anecdotes so many um little stories and and trades and i'm sure things that are kind of forgotten and that would make you the the pimco in-house historian if you were interested in that um (laughs) but but i want to ask you just to kick it off right we've talked about this before i was struck by how towards the end um bill bill's behavior seemed almost unreasonably just sort of you know grumpy or just uh, abrasive and and then there were sort of these and i was like is is he just does he just have a low blood sugar is there just like a combination of the the wrong breakfast and too much caffeine going on like what is going because it just seemed like or is it the pressure of underperformance there's a section where he talks about that specifically so i'm curious your perspective on just towards the end how much of that is sort of these Tell me about your your perspective. Like, why was it so confrontational? So, like, like yeah. what's going on? I think you're right. There are um, a bunch of different dy- dynamics here that are at play. You know, you do have the performance element where this guy's not used to underperforming. It eats away at him. And I think internally at PIMCO, you know, it does also eat away at your credibility. So to some extent, you know, he had obviously decades of outperformance. But then these two years, 2011 and 2013, where he had not performed as well. and I think that really weighed on him and and also really affected how he was perceived within the company. So that's one thing. Um, and I think also, you know, you're you're joking about the blood sugar thing, but like I need a consistent flow of snacks personally. And, you know, if I don't have those, I'm an absolute monster. <laughs> I'm projecting a little bit, but we were joke we were joking about this a little bit. But, you know, he writes in his book, and I have certainly heard this um, you know, externally and and independently that he eats a bunch of M&Ms every like midday or mor- morning, you know, it's like Wall Street midday. So whatever in California. And like, 
I don't know that uh, there are effects of long term. I, I don't know. I feel like that's not the best for someone who's so concerned about his health and so concerned about staying with it and staying on it. Like that surprised me a little bit. I mean, I'm a sugar person also, so I'm, I certainly couldn't throw stones. But um, but yeah, maybe he you know, maybe the investment committee meeting was was coming during his blood sugar crash. Like, I don't know. Did we get Bill Gross enough snacks? That's a that's a very relevant question, I think. <laughs> I, I think that question was was front and center. But but you, you hit on, on another point in, in the book, which is sort of the culture at PIMCO, which obviously Bill sort of helped create. And there's some great quotes about you, you wrote. I mean, I, I pulled this out. You said Gross had stewed for decades on what made a man great. And by now he felt he had a handle on his on his need to be extraordinary, his compulsions, his fear. And sort of this element of fear and mm-hmm. paranoia and um, degree of trying Stay to, you top. know, uh, this compulsion yeah. to control. And, and and it feels like to me almost like that was sort of helpful for a long time, period of time. And then when you underperform, that culture kind of eats you and rejects totally. you. And you sort of... I think that's so a that, correct read. Yes, that that culture of intensity, of obsessive focus and controlled and and being incredibly incredibly harsh on people who underperform or whose you know presentations aren't paginated correctly like all of these things that that bill himself created and you know in his own image that does turn on you and of course everyone will say you know bill's as hard on himself as he is on everyone else that it's it's very fair in that way but that still means that you know he too bore the brunt of this kind of turn and i think that's more pronounced in the media where you know, if you have a good image for so long and you're a little bit like just under the, the radar and you're doing great and everyone likes you and thinks you're really smart, the minute you kind of break through and you're either obs- people are obsessed with you in a good way or people are obsessed with you because you had a bad Wall Street Journal, you know, cover story about your being angry and bullying or whatever it may be, you know, that's really hard to recover from. And like once that sentiment turns, I feel like it's like, not only is that hard from a just a brand management perspective for anyone, I think that was just extremely corrosive for Bill Gross and because it was so important to him. So he's basking in the glow for so long and people, you know, really revere him. And that's what he wanted. He wanted to be famous. That was his his driving motivation kind of the whole time. And in this world where that's suddenly upside down, where it looks like his, you know, at that point, basically his enemy, Muhammad Alarian, is getting the better play in the press, that he's looking like the good guy. That is just built to agitate Bill Gross. That's his enemy is winning. That's not okay. That's his carefully crafted image is corroding, is being turned upside down. That's not okay. Like all of these things kind of come together for someone who is so, you know, these are his top priorities in many ways. And he gets obsessive. You know, one of the things that made him such a great investor was his ability to hyperfocus and get obsessive and not be able to kind of let go of something and not be able to even not be willing to take a break. And that you see show up in this kind of managerial and like image problem in 2014. And I think to a large extent, that is is what did him in at PIMCO. Yeah, I was so surprised there was this moment where um, I think it's him or like part of the recruitment process, right? They throw out this question, like, what would you pick? Is it, you know, money, performance or fame? And, And he picked fame and I was like I don't really understand that because as a manager right sort of the number one you'd you'd assume the number one thing is sort of the performance and and the track record it was actually money fame power sorry just for money fame money fame power okay and you can argue he achieved there's so much overlap between those it's interesting to to break it out in that way but what's your question sorry no, no, I, just, I was just I was just surprised when I read that that he that he picked fame because it's not obvious that as a money manager 
um, you'd get there, but then you realize, well, he's constantly sort of putting himself out there and writing and sometimes writing missives that get very personal and strange. And um, so do, do you, so, so it seems like that was one, one of the elements that, I mean, I, I, I was, I, I still, I still struggle a little bit with, with, with the ending of, of the book and how it all, all unfolded. So, is is there something is there something I mean because because I feel like one oh there's this other piece that you wrote where it just you said it was the transition from a founder-led organization to kind of an institution, right? And that it almost strikes me is that the overarching theme? Like is it is this just is this just a special case of you know this is Bill Gross, but it's just it's so difficult to move from something that's founder-led, maybe in money management in particular, to something that's more institutional, more decentralized yeah. as people who didn't work I think absolutely that's a, a lesson from this is um it's kind of a how not to move away from your founder because you know the things that that make someone capable of achieving the track record that Bill Gross did achieving the kind of firm building that Bill Gross was a part of you know those personality traits are you're going to be exacting you're going to be really intense and focused you're going to be a perfectionist a micromanager you're going to keep a really tight grip on things all of these things, generally speaking, help contribute to the success of the firm. You know, to, you know, there's obviously tipping points in, in these things where that starts to become deleterious. But for the most part, these are the things that you look to that you see very frequently in founders and also that toxic culture that can often come along with some of those traits. So then, you know, those traits also make it very difficult, if not impossible, to have a graceful transition away from that founder. Because the minute they start to loosen their grip, they freak out because they can't. That's that's not something that they're like psychologically capable of i think in a lot of these cases they just the tight grip is who they are this firm is who they are so first of all detangling that identity from work which is like sort of an american problem in general <laughs> like that i think is a is a real problem but also the true like most foundational fundamental personality traits that make these founders you know who they are and so successful are the exact traits that make it basically impossible to get them out of their own firms gracefully at least yeah no i think that's yeah that's that's very true and i think the sort of identity issue that that you just touched on is is huge and and it's especially maybe it's especially pronounced in, in money management but but maybe just generally for for founders um and I'm, I'm curious on your perspective since you're sort of covering the bond world in general and there's i love this it's at some point in the book you're like i cover bonds and they're the most exciting thing it's like you know, equities are kind of just yeah. a sideshow i'm like yeah. no equities no, is right. where the action is but obviously to some extent you're right like it's it's yeah. a massive market and <laughs> um but tell me about how you see pimco as an organization and is this kind of culture that's you know exacting maybe a little bit paranoid maybe a little uh, i don't want to call it a little bit toxic but just fair. you know it's a special, special. culture like <laughs> yeah i mean i, I think you, you call it I you do. call it that in the, in the book so, so maybe i can lean on that but is that very unusual in that world how, how does it compare to other large bond i think managers? compared to other large bond managers it is worse th at pimco i think the toxicity you know this is much more what you might see it's different in kind. Also, it's a little hard to compare because like the silence of the trade floor is certainly in contrast to the like ridiculously intense hedge funds you hear about where everyone's like slamming phones down and breaking them or like throwing things at people like that's a different that's a different vibe. But and, and that's, I think, representative to some extent. You know, people always said that Bill Gross was a hedge fund manager and a mutual fund wrapper. So like maybe that's an example of that manifesting in an interesting way. But I do think, you know, if you're going to work at like 
BlackRock or Wellington or, you know, Capital Group, a lot of these places. I don't I don't know as much because I haven't spent, you know, a ridiculous portion of my life thinking about them. I don't know as much about their cultures, but I certainly don't hear the same things. And I think that's I think that's true. Like it, I spent so much time thinking about Pemco because it was such an outlier. And that shows up in the way that they treat the street. That shows up in the the things that they say to me when they leave, which are just like, you know, next level standard deviations away from what you hear from other people who leave the industry or leave a firm. Um, and I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of them that go to other places that go to some of those names and they're like, oh, my God, I'm so much happier. <laughs> like, my life is so much better. So I think that's that, you know, my evidence, again, is not robust because I have not yet. And hopefully I won't spend seven years thinking about all these other places. But I think from from my evidence, I would conclude that, yeah, PIMCO's culture is way more toxic and way worse than than a lot of these other places. And I do ascribe part of that to the location, to the geography of being kind of stranded in Orange County, which, you know, there's stuff to do in Orange County, but not really in the like rich, white, moneyed world of Newport Beach and Laguna, where you're trapped in this like crucible of toxicity that is your workplace and you don't have a life outside of it. So I think that wrangling makes it worse, like that, that it is this kind of you're a prisoner to this totally voluntary structure. You know, like everyone's opted in, but no one can opt out. And like, <laughs> yeah, it's literally, Hotel California, just yeah, very really well paid. Cal- yeah. And I think that's, I, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. And there are a lot of ways that it's self-reinforcing. But there was a consultant who talked about this and I actually weirdly never made it into my book, but he described it this way as he's, it's like a closed circuit that there's no out. And if you, if you leave, if you take an out, then you've lost. So I think that's, you know, that's a lot of, of why it becomes so intense because it is it does become all consuming. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the flip side. And, and, and I actually highlighted some of those areas where it's like, yeah, you're, you're out in Newport. And if you ever if you ever leave, first of all, you're sort of out of the loop. And because you and, be, and, and, and I think there's this element of you describe how hard they push right against the banks, the dealers, how, how gross and others felt like they were constantly being taken advantage of. Probably right about that to some extent. But right then you push back a lot and it basically doesn't earn you a lot of credit with your counterparties and, and with other future employees. So let's talk a little bit about what made Bill successful and um, created that track record. And, and there's a whole bunch of different things I, I noted down, but like, let's just start with with your view of like, well, what made him, what what got him to that point? You mean like his his trades or? Um, yeah, I mean things like yeah, the sure, structural sure. alpha, the strategic mediocrity, yeah. the you know, the, the yeah. I I mean I there's so many things to hit on. Whatever whatever you think is sort of most. I don't know. I don't want to say most defining, but yeah, what I really... I think structural alpha know, would be the answer. I think, you know, Bill yeah. was a, a, a whiz about marketing and a whiz about, you know, he was a careful interest rate watcher all these many decades, yada, yada. But I think the thing that to me is the lasting investing legacy, aside from Loki inventing um, actively trading bonds, would be structural alpha. This idea that there are market inefficiencies that you can that are replicable, that are robust, and that you can basically count on to some extent to take informed risk in the market. And, you know, that in part is getting to a security or an asset class early before everyone else is, maybe before it gets put into the index and everyone else comes running. And that that's true of, say, mortgages, where PIMCO was super early, super willing to dive in, where everyone else is kind of like, I don't know, it's not in the index. It's a kind of a scary market. It's complex. There's this thing called negative convexity that, you know, what even is that? Yada, yada. And for all of these reasons and others, you know, 
Pimgo was able and willing to jump in, embrace it, and reap the reward of that for a long time. And so that helped establish outperformance. Then there's also the concept of selling volatility, where Bill Gross is far willing, far more willing to take the risk that something trades outside of, you know, a range. So he'll pick a range of the S&P or some other, you know, security or index and say, OK, I think it's going to trade from this to that. And it's not going to go outside of my little prescribed range. And he'll sell calls and puts on it. And then, you know, if it goes outside, he owes somebody money. But otherwise, he picks up the premium. And I think that that, you know, that's so smart because he realizes that everyone else is anxious. He has like thought about the math of this. He's thought about the probability that it would trade outside of that range or he just intuits that it's probably not going to trade outside of that range, barring some kind of, you know, war or whatever. And in most cases, you know, things are more calm than people expect. People are are willing to pay that insurance to Bill Gross so they can sleep at night. And Bill doesn't care about that. So that was this kind of structural thing that was replicable, that was robust, that he could actually almost to some extent rely on being able to do. And, you know, there are other examples, but those are the the idea of Lambda Cash of kind of embedding, as Paul McCauley would say, a shadow bank within PIMCO, where they basically, you know, whenever they bought a forward or a future, they would invest the cash before the money was due and just chuck it in, you know, cash equivalents, short dated corporate notes, which gave them just a little bit of yield while they were waiting for the moment when that money would be relevant again or needed. So, you know, other firms aren't doing that. Those are things that PIMCO found that you can do over and over and over and over and collect just a little bit extra money that your peers and competitors are not collecting. And I think that, you know, I've kind of lost faith in like active management to some extent, sadly. Like I just there's something so fundamentally unserious about the idea that like, oh, I can break the future. I'm going to like just somehow know that the Swiss peg is going away or somehow know that the war is like just to a a very large extent, you can't. And the the basis of, you know, a lot of financial journalism is like writing down what all these people say they think about the future. And it's just folly. So (laughs) I'm so guilty of that. But But you know what I mean? Like it it, it's frustrating because and and I perhaps it's a, a selection bias problem because I've written all of these people making these, you know, they think informed predictions. But after a certain volume of them, I'm just like, come on, y'all, like none of these happened. <laughs> or they did. And they were like really spurious predictions. Anyway, yeah. so that is helpful for me because it's like the, the idea of structural alpha is helpful for me because it's like, oh, this this I can wrap my mind around. These things make sense to me and feel sturdy, feel robust to me where I like, you know, I, I think that it's true that people want to pay for insurance that they probably don't need. I, that makes sense. Like all of these things that, that they put forward in the tenets of structural alpha, like, OK, yeah, yeah, I see how that works. So I just I find that kind of soothing that they're. They're both like proven um, to some extent, but also feel kind of, you know, I get it. It makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I really like that there was that, that you put the emphasis on these many small things that that he and, and, and his team sort of did well and figured out over time and then kind of consistently um, implemented versus you know, the, the, there, there's another element, right, which is sort of the, the bold and contrarian calls. And, and we'll get to that in a moment because it's also interesting. But sort of this accumulation of doing doing a lot of the small things well and having a process around that and, and, and negotiating really hard. And um, and then there's the element of size, though, right? And, and I always wondered, well, if it's true that he did just a lot of small things well, um, First of all, to what extent do they fall by? I mean, there's sort of three questions. I'm gonna we can tackle them one by one. But I'm like, the first thing is like, does it go away as you grow in size? The second is why wasn't he be able to replicate it? You know, after he left Pimco, and 
And the third is it is it just sort of over indexed or over optimized to a certain market environment, right? Like eighties, nineties until oh eight or after eight, just like falling interest rates. Like is it you know, just is it just one type of bond market regime where this works well? And yeah, I, I have so I'm I know I need to, I, write I these down myself. This pen doesn't work, so I like pulled out a pen, but I know it doesn't work. But I, I'm going to make you come back to that, to, so I remember what I wanted to say. Yeah. Okay, so a number of things. Yes, when he went to Janus, if you look at the the day that he took over the fund at Janus and the day that he announced his retirement, mm-hmm. the yield on the ten year went up. So that is a different interest rate regime than he was in for the forty years at Pimco, right? Where he you know, was managing more or less in a declining rate environment, which is just, as we know, a tailwind for bonds. So I think that also, you know, a lot of his strategies like structural alpha, there are embedded, you know, things that I think make it more reliable when you have a falling rate environment. So the extent to which his his structural alpha tenants were like mangled or, or messed up by a re- rising rate environment, I don't actually know. But, you know, you think about something like rolling down the curve, or you think about taking more credit risk, or you think about you know, selling volatility. Like there are a lot of things that, that, you know, potentially went sideways and did go sideways in that time period. So those are two, you know, he also was competing against, he, he was suddenly in an unconstrained fund where he had been in a total return fund. And one of the ways to think about his genius, you know, is to think about the, he's, he's a, thinking about it as beat the dealer, right? That's the approach that he's bringing. And the dealer in this case mm-hmm. is the benchmark is the the kind of broad, you know, the Barclays Ag, the Lehman, Bloomberg, whatever it may be today, (laughs) the Ag. And just if he has that benchmark, all he has to do is do more than that benchmark. And he can look at the benchmark and see what's in it and then just do a little bit more. And if he does a little bit more, takes a little bit more risk than the benchmark and gets compensated appropriately, he will win every time. And that worked, right? Until then he goes to an unconstrained fund and suddenly he's untethered from that benchmark. And then furthermore, so I think I'm on point four at this point. Wait, what? Sorry, yeah. sorry can you just, um, so specifically the difference between, and I, and I know there was an unconstrained yeah. fund at, at PIMCO too, but can you just kind of compare and contrast quickly the, so what's the major difference? Is, is the yeah. benchmark and It's and the benchmark and the asset class. class. So can, unconstrained, yeah. yes, total return, you know, he had this kind of world that he created more or less where you have this proportion yeah. of you're supposed to take basically this much risk and these are the mandates and, and it's very prescribed and unconstrained was this like kind of hot new go anywhere product and the universe was a bit cloudy like i remember at bloomberg debating how we were supposed to compare like what universe we were supposed to use to compare it against and okay. there is no benchmark there is no comparison on you know where where you know for a total return fund there's a very established comparison against the the barclays ag god i really should learn how to say there is no, st- you know, there, everyone compares against the Bloomberg ag. And so that's just the thing that you look to. And if you're outperforming that, then you're outperforming. That's great. Yes, you also compare against a universe of your peers. But for the most part, beat the ag and you're happy. Your clients are happy. There, there just isn't that in unconstrained. It's literally, I mean, it's in the okay. name. The definition is that they're unconstrained to a specific benchmark. Here. All right. Well, well no, no. <laughs> it, um, but... <laughs> But you hit on something that I totally I have it in my notes, but the the beating the dealer and what I did not know at all. And it's sort of a recurring theme a, a across investors. And then I saw it in, in Bill's background, too, um, is that he um, spent time in, in Vegas. He spent time sort of understanding how, um, I guess, strategies in, in gambling work and understanding sort of the difference between 
gambling and, and having a strategy where you beat the odds and then being the house. So, so, so talk to me about how that influenced his, his thinking and how he Yeah, so, you know, we all know that the house always wins and there's always a statistical reason for that, right? If you're playing blackjack, for example, you're just the, the, without any kind of information edge, you're just playing random odds. You're just taking your chances and it's like really silly and dumb and you're not going to win. You're just bringing yourself up for, you know, you're just setting yourself up for failure. So Bill Gross learned from this Ed Thorpe book called Beat the Dealer that you can count cards. And there are various methods to this, but you basically, you know, plus one for every high card, minus one for a low card, or vice versa, depending on your method. And, you know, this allows you to keep track of the cards that are coming out and to say as a result, okay, the next card is more likely or less likely to be a high card and mess up my total. I'm trying to get to be close to 21, but not over. And in this, in this, you kind of learn, you know, he started to learn how to feel when the table was hot and when it wasn't. And I think that this sensibility of both understanding the math and knowing the math to some extent, but also feeling it and feeling that kind of pace of the table and like, no, just knowing when, when you have that edge and when you don't. And then also watching all the people around you who have no edge whatsoever and who are just like flopping around doing dumb stuff and taking their dumb chances. Like all of that helped to inform how he approached the market and how, like who he saw as his competitors. His competitors aren't really the dumb people doing the dumb stuff. His competitor is the market, is the, is the dealer. And, mm. you know, I think this shows up, you're saying be the house. There's an example in the book where PIMCO figured out, Bill Gross and PIMCO figured out that, you know, the U.S. government wasn't going to let certain institutions fail in the financial crisis. That basically there was going to be a government mm. backstop at some point because there had to be. And they were like, okay, like, if I know this, if I know that the U.S. government is the house, I'm going to be the house. I'm going to try to align my own interests. I think of it now as a bit like a slipstream swim strategy where you're like just going along with whatever the government's going to do, except that it's the opposite of slipstream because you want to get there first, right? The point was mm -hmm. do what the government's going to do, but do it first. Buy what they're going to buy and then sell it to them or ride that wave as they, as the, you know, the news of their purchase causes the price of those assets to soar. And that's exactly what happened. Which, which is interesting, um, and and I think it comes through in the book too. There's sort of this tension between being a contrarian, being a, a trend follower, right? And in this case, he's sort of, well, if um, if the government backstops this, and actually these these products are, are, are kind of underpriced, or the spread is too rich, so I'm going to just um, pile into that and, and ride it for a while. And then there's these other moments when I guess before '07, and and I think a couple of years before. They come out with this idea of, well, the, the mortgage market that we know so well um, is going to be in trouble and the shadow banking system and, and all that stuff. And but, but they're very early. And so how important do you think maybe that moment in particular, but, but just generally making these sort of bold calls on, on the entire market, how important was that versus the sort of the, the these accumulated small structural um, pieces? And, and what do you think specifically, I guess, of the of that 07 episode, which which uh, I, I thought was super interesting, but to your point, like, is it, you know, really replicable? Yeah. Is that just sort of a, a good it's, story? It's interesting because talking to people who worked with Bill, they'll say like, oh, he loved to make these big, bold calls and he was right more often than not. And then on the flip side, there was this analysis in 2019 by two people, one of whom used to work at PIMCO, and they found that actually that wasn't the case, that like at least when these factors of like rate risk and, you know, credit risk and mortgage risk, all of these things that, that Bill exploited well, 
when those were about to do well, Bill did not necessarily lean in. In fact, they found a little bit of evidence to the opposite, that actually he seemed to anti-time. So, you know, that that in spite of his market calls, he did well. So I don't know what to necessarily, like how to weight that finding necessarily, because certainly the anecdotal mm. findings, the people who look, worked alongside him for decades, they, they see that he did do well with a lot of these calls. And I certainly, you know, I repeat some of them in the book. There's this one in 94 in Mexico. There's this one and, you know, there are a bunch of examples. That being said, you know, I think the biggest example of those would be the, the housing crisis. And that being said, there is the like 2011, 2013, where he kind of whiffed. 2013, I feel like is more explainable where it was like exogenous. 2011 was a bit, you know, unforced. That was kind of a, a you know, a, a bad read or a mistaken read of the situation and, and, a, and a real, whoops, I kicked a stool. Um, 2011 was more of a case of it was it was unforced and there was no real external catalyst. It was just their own idea that was wrong. Um, and, you know, that happens. They apologize. You know, Bill Gross apologized famously for that performance. But I think, you know, he'll he'll say it's when you know the odds are in your favor. It's when you know that you have 51 percent and then you lean in with everything you have when you know that the odds are in your favor. Now, not everything, that's a bit super, like that's kind of hyperbolic because you need to avoid ruin. And that's the other part of the whole game is just staying, having enough chips Mm. to keep playing. You know, you don't ever want to bet so much that you wipe yourself out because to a very, very large extent, one of Bill Gross's things is that just staying in the game is winning. And this is that concept that you mentioned of strategic mediocrity, which Bill, I think would never own. I don't think he would ever say that. I think he would die before he owned mediocrity. But this was Ben Trasky, this like hilarious person who uh, managed the junk fund in the 90s. And he said, I want to be the best bond manager over a 10-year period, which means he ran a bunch of simulations. And every time he found that if you want to be the best manager over 10 years, you got to not be the best manager in any given year, which means if you're the best manager in one year, you know, your your performance is better than 100% of your peers or, okay, 99 point whatever. You probably took too much risk. You probably did something a little dumb. Like that, that probably was not that informed of a risk and you just got lucky. So you're doing something that could blow you out and that's what you don't want. So the idea is actually to be in the top decile, top quartile and just outlast everybody else who's taking too much risk trying to be number one. I love it. That to me is so elegant and makes yeah. such beautiful sense. I, I really loved that, um, that explanation and also that quote in, because it goes against it's funny right so on the one hand i'm like yeah that this makes a lot of sense and and i can see how that that's how you would build a really good business right how you'd build a a mutual fund that ultimately takes in a lot of assets because you and i think you described this in the book like really the objective is just you you beat your peers slash the the benchmark over and and you survive and eventually um, that that works but on the other hand sort of you know the the um Let's call mm-hmm. it the ego, right? If you're managing a fund, no, you want to be the best that's now, the best this year, the best over any time. And that's, over a trap. Any and that's frame, also right? what happened to Bill at Janus, where he needed to prove, because ego, prove to Pimco that they had made the wrong choice by ousting him. And so he, you know, this is a little bit my overlay, where he was, he told me and others, he told anyone who would ask, that he was, you know, obsessively checking every day his performance against Pimco's. And I think that that, you know, my read of that is that he was not emotionless in that interaction, right? He was locked in this dy- dynamic mm. with Pimco that he, you know, that became more his obsessive focus than just the pure performance. So interacting with all the other things that we said, the unconstrained fund, the, you know, change in the interest rate environment, all of those things, yes, but also I think he allowed emotion to cloud his investing. And that changes the paradigm too. 
Yeah, no, I think that's actually, I, now that I go back, no, th that makes perfect sense, right? Because there's an element of where a chip on your shoulder can be helpful, and I'm sure it was when, when Bill sort yeah. of started the firm. But then um, being ousted and sort of wanting payback exactly. and, is, and, and, and and trying to like make it happen on a very short time frame, that's, uh, that's the opposite of yeah. the the sort of strategic yeah, it's, approach. But you've made an interesting point, though, because I think, you know, reducing ego and making it more just confidence, where I think something that I'm confused about is like, okay, Bill Gross had this strategy, all these structural alpha things that did work and that, that were, you know, informed bets and informed risk and, and they worked well. But then how do you know when that breaks? Like, did it actually break in, you know, 2013 or 14 when the interest rate world shifted a little bit? Or was it actually, like, how do you know, for all his, his reflectiveness and all of his self-awareness, you know, I feel like I have this confusion about whether, like, when you're supposed to stick to your guns, to stick to your strategy and just stay true to your, you know, trying to get the true odds and avoiding ruin and doing your strategy because you know it's a good strategy and it's coming back to the table every day mm. versus knowing when the world has actually changed. And like, I think like you're saying, all these things, including the marketing, including his intense focus, his obsessiveness, his behavior at, at work, his like the way he interacted with everybody else at work, a lot of these things were really consistent. Like, it's not like he suddenly started being, I don't think he suddenly started being way harsh and suddenly everyone was mad at him. I think he was just kind of a harsh, you know, person to interact with in the office the whole time. And it just looked different. M maybe that's wrong. I'm sure, you know, yeah. maybe, you know, after 40 years of no one saying no, you get a little different. But even adjusting for that, I can't imagine that that's really the the main thing. And so I'm always kind of, right now I'm kind of grappling with like, okay, you have a strategy, you know when your strategy is working, it's a good strategy. When do you know when it doesn't work? How do you know when it's broken? Yeah, yeah. no, I, I agree. This is sort of one of the, um, one of the hardest things to, to, to wrestle with. I guess both as an investor and then as an LP or investor in someone's fund, right? Do you, like, what's what's just kind of a reflection of 10 20 year cycle and like when when should you adapt and what are sort of these these tenants that should that should never be moved and i think it gets much harder with age and also with success right because yeah you have this long track record and why would you ever deviate from from that and then at the same time um and i think this comes to in the book as well a little bit right he's um at some point, right, he's in his in his sixties, late sixties, or people around him who are much younger who like get into other asset classes, right, like uh, commercial real estate, private equity, who do stuff. And he and there seemed it. This is my interpretation, but it seems that at some point, Bill almost had like a visceral reaction to the people who had success doing things that were very yeah. um, uh, opaque or that he didn't understand, or like worlds where he just wasn't mm -hmm. at home. And he sort of he calls private equity like, oh, yeah. this is passive. Like it's almost like he's just like. Dismissive. Yeah. Go away. Like this, this doesn't belong into my house. Yeah. Like, how do you think about? Because, because that feels like a totally. similar dynamic of just like rejecting change or things that were happening that could yeah, have been. Yeah, and this is but. actually not Bill Gross's like fundamental personality over the decades, as I've understood it too. Like, part of Pimco's success and genius was that he and Chris Dialinus and others, whenever a new product came out or a new thing arrived, they were first on the scene. Like, they they loved getting into futures before everyone else did it. They, you know, were loved getting into mortgages. There's so many areas in which you can see that their their being early was basically an, a source of alpha. And I think that that's and you know maybe this is a reflection of like you're saying age and and you know fear and this sense that the firm had moved away from him and and away from what he knew in the world where he grew up. 
you know, because he's talking about there's this one meeting in 2013 where he's kind of railing at the commercial real estate team. And he's talking about an auction as if it's like a liquid market. But he knows an auction. Auctions are not foreign to him. He trades treasuries like this isn't a confusing space for him. And yet his questions sounded like he just didn't understand, which can't be. It just doesn't make any sense. So there is something weird where where it seemed like suddenly, like you're saying, he was rejecting this this new fangled world. This and, you know, this became a source of tension between him and Muhammad Alarian. And, you know, in the book, they, they're like wrangling over. He's like, I think there needs to be two risk committees. We need to have two risk committees because I, I don't understand all that other stuff over there. We're taking too much risk in these, you know, in the stock market and, you know, these commercial real estate holdings and whatever. I want to just oversee my risk. You go oversee this other weird risk that I don't like. And it's like, that's not that's not going to work, first of all. And I think he knew that. He knew that that was like not the world's greatest proposal. But it's also just not really aligned with the the decades of what they had dedicated themselves to at the firm. So I think you're right. Like that that's where it starts to leak in, where it's this it's this new sense of, I don't know, fear or having been left behind or this idea that, you know, I don't know, I I'm maybe projecting here, but you know, he thought a lot about his own mortality and his own legacy and his place in the world. And this has to be a moment where he's grappling with, you know, have I been left behind? Is am I kind of outdated here? Yeah. Yeah. I actually think this is sort of a theme that um, repeats itself in, in that in that space where um, it's not obvious when you should retire. Right. Because on the one hand, your level of experience and in many cases, sort of the value of your of your networks, the access you get right in let's take Warren Buffett, like people come to you with a lot of interesting deals that goes up. And on, on the other hand, the, the world changes and moves on. And, and certainly it's much harder, I think, to understand what happens in technology once you're 80 versus if you're in your 20s or 30s. So um, but it's not obvious because you don't you can be phys- you can your body won't really tell you when 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 to stop and and so i think it almost strikes me like there was this point where sort of it was clear that the firm was going to outlive him and the firm was much bigger than him and he didn't want to let go right and so he starts rejecting these um these products and um tell me about the tension between that right because he brings in elarian and and he it's there's also this push between the person who's a trader at heart and takes risk and then people who are managers and business builders and who are maybe not really good at fund managing. Maybe they're good at marketing and, you know, um, hiring talent, whatever, but they're not the people who, who are good portfolio managers, right? And, and I feel like he's not the person who really values that skill set. So, so <laughs> tell me no, about that's that that's exactly dynamic. right. And I think what Bill values is what the firm valued, right? So anyone who was in, there was always kind of that tilt toward portfolio management that if you touched the market, you were more important than anyone who didn't. And I think that, you know, that's true across a lot of money management uh, companies. I think there's kind of an institutional bias against like back office function, even though good luck trying to function without a back office. I'm very confused by that. Um, don't get me on my little hobby horse or whatever thing. Soap soapbox. Is it a soap? No, I just I have this whole thing about how I think there's a co-founder of PIMCO that no one acknowledged where the woman who ran the back office and who helped to set up so many of the you know, accounting and HR and all this stuff, you know, she was a critical kind of member of this founding team. And I know you're surprised to learn that a woman didn't get credit for her work in the 80s. 
I know you're shocked, but you know, okay, if we're if we're talking about like like to me, Pat Fisher was a foundational was a was a co-founder, and she was never even made partner. So you know, she doesn't have a chip on her shoulder about it. I don't think, um, which is you know, she she kind of has managed to transcend the whole thing, which bless her. But that's kind of you know, I have a chip on my shoulder about <laughs> about it. But yeah, it's not it's not shocking. So yeah, what like you're saying, you know, if you're in in the kind of market world at Pimco and everywhere, it's the most important thing. And there's there was very little respect for the business side for and you know that happened to be at times Doug Hodge, God bless, um, that happened to be you know that would also mean Muhammad Alarian. That also means you know anyone in the client client facing side of things. And it's not that Bill doesn't know that those things are not, he knows they're important. Like he understands that those are important things, but he just doesn't want to deal with it and he doesn't care and he doesn't want to be bored with it. And it's like, you're a bureaucrat. The fewer of you there are, the better. And like, if you can't run it, then what's your problem? You're just messing it. You know, there's like, he knows it's important, but he also completely does not respect if it's going wrong that like maybe something difficult is happening. I could just think he just was like, fix it. I don't know what your problem is. Fix it. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah, it, it strikes me it was sort of the attitude you could take when when you're like a small shop, right? It's just three people and a, and a Bloomberg and a, and a phone. Even then, to your point, right? People who help the business sort of get uh, kind of leave and, and are sort of written out of the history book or never really compensated for the work that they put in. Um, but it strikes me it's much more an attitude you can take when it's a small shop and you sort of, the, it's easy to like keep track of what's going on. And in PIMCO today, right, like you manage trillions of dollars. Um, the business operating well is probably as important as sort of the returns that you put up because you can kind of fail on either side. And yet, and yet towards the end, he kind of becomes this disruptive element yeah. to that, right? Like it's almost, it seems to me that the, I don't want to call it the coup. He but, would. But the decision. He would it was, call was it a coup. coup? Yeah. Like, is that how you... And he would call it a coup, but the, the 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 decision by other people on the executive committee and 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 so forth to ultimately like, you know remove him, it's almost like he's he's become this this free radical who kind of starts to impair the the rest of the organization, and people are looking at their own paychecks and like I I don't know how much I'm gonna I'm gonna That's take exactly of this, right, so yeah. it's sort of. Um, the organization kind of rejects yeah. him, right? And, yeah, he and, became like a foreign body. I think that's exactly right. And it is like, I was talking to somebody else about this and he was saying that it's actually much harder to build a firm of Pimco's size. You know, like you can perform in the market for however many years and do great and be strategically mediocre or not and do fine. But in this person's view, it's much harder to build a $2 trillion asset manager that, you know, has succeeded for so long. And it's funny, and they're like, but Bill didn't value that. That's not what Bill valued. He measured himself, and he valued everything by how things performed in the market. And if he was up, he was up, and if he was down, he was down. And that, I think, is really astute because it is this kind of idea that, like, he did achieve this kind of exceptional thing, which he said. You know, he knows that, you know, there will never be another PIMCO, yada, yada. He said stuff like that. But at the same time, I don't know how much he cared. You know, it was cool, but I think the real measuring stick for him was market performance and that that mattered so much more. So like, yeah, in the end, you know, he was, he was this star trader, he was this bond legend. And so in the end, when that, when his image came into conflict with the management of the company, that's where you start to see this kind of chasm open up between him and the rest of Pimco's management, because he's trying to fix his image. He's like, you're not standing up for me in the press. You're not out there defending me. 
you know, he's clearly just grappling with Muhammad Alarian's departure in the aftermath, the bad articles about him in the press and like tightening, tightening his grip. And they're like, what? Why are you still so hyper focused yeah. on this? Like, we've got to move on. We've got to do the, the business. You know, we've got to like be a be a company. Yeah. And I think that tension where he just is still focused on this thing and, and regaining the, you know, the other yardstick for himself, his public image. And they're just so far from that. And and that distance just keeps widening until it's just totally untenable. Yeah, I, th- I think this interplay, but just, just how important the image is and, and how important it was to him to be portrayed in the right way. And then, then he goes on these hilarious, um, you know, tr- trying to fix it and w- with some media campaign and just gets worse and worse. Um, I'm curious, so you've, you've spent years of your life on this story, this person, how all of that played out. And now you go back and, and you're dealing with everybody else, I guess, in and around the bond market. And I'm curious how it's changed your perspective on other organizations and other managers on, on how that world operates. Like, for example, he meets um, uh, Jeffrey Gundlach at the end, right? like trying to figure out, like, is there something for me to do here? And it strikes me, right, like there are some other colorful characters in, in the space. And I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering now that you've done sort of this deep dive and I don't know if there were things that were really surprising to you, but just how has your perspective shifted? And is it just this is like an isolated case or is it just you're you're thinking about everything differently? Oh, interesting question. I do think, you know, when I started this and I think this is a little bit societal, so not just me, but I feel like when I started this in 2014, we had so much more reverence for founders. Like we were like all about founders. We were like, I think Elizabeth Holmes was still being written up in the New Yorker as amazing. Like all of these people were our gods. And I think in the intervening years, we've kind of become a little bit more disillusioned. And we've learned that maybe that's not the safest thing as a society, the smartest thing as a society, that maybe these people don't have all the answers. Maybe some of their innovations were just skirting regulation. Maybe some of their, you know, I don't, I'm just, projecting. I don't know. But I think that, you know, when I started this book, I was like, wow, Bond legend, Bill Gro, And like all of that's still true. And I certainly that, you know, I talked to so many people who were there at the dawn of active bond trading. And one thing that was staggering was like, everybody's still alive and all this stuff just happened. And this is insane. Like, why are we not listening to these stories more? There, There's people who will just talk your ear off because no one ever asks them, you know, and they were there and it's banana. And like that was really fun to get to hear kind of living history stuff. It also underscored the extent to which all of this is unchanged, too. I know I just said it's exciting and new and they all invented it. But at the same time, there's this this kind of chilling moment that I keep remembering where I was interviewing an old pension manager and he was telling me about his strategy in the 70s to buy like shopping malls and like a passive fund, which, you know, they didn't call them that at the time. But I was like, wait, what? You were doing a barbell strategy? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, in the 70s, like I just wrote how more people are doing like it was news that I wrote that barbell strategies were like in and I was so embarrassed because I you know I'm like 20 something I think I've like stumbled upon some great no it all happened before so those two things sort of um are completely dissonant but also both true and and I think that idea that you know all these founders yes what they did was impressive and amazing but I have more than anything I think I've learned that everybody is just a person and there's no amount of success or money that helps you escape any of those anything that comes with that i mean if there's one thing that comes through in the book it's yes everybody's very much still a person and and has to deal with and 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 the two right the personal and the business side can can very much derail or influence each other tell me about why you spend your time 
mm. in the bond market, right? And like, why is it? I, I'm still thinking about this, like ah, the equity Sorry. market. What do they know? They yeah, know nothing. No, but like, but what makes it interesting I to think, you? Yeah, I think to engaged? some extent, I like a challenge. I like that there can be like elegant and sophisticated structures that are fun to play in. So that I think is just very simply. Um, it might be that, you know, speaking of chips on shoulders, I feel like it, there's some like, oh, you wouldn't understand about, you know, from the bond world. Like not if you actually talk to bond people, they're not generally like that. But that is the kind of stance where people are like, this stuff's complicated. And I'm like, all right, let me in. Let me add it. Let's see what we got. So that's fun, you know, getting and and there's so many fun and ridiculous like the the, you know, stories that I've been able to cover and, and you know, break news on in my career have been extremely amazing to me, like. The London Whale, Codere, like all of these stories that have just like some degree of of structuring that, you know, is supposed to work in this one way or is so beautiful in this one way and then gets totally circumvented or blown up. Like that's so fun to me. So that I know you can do fun stuff in equity derivatives. Like I'm aware of that. <laughs> I don't know. I just find them so boring. Like stocks just go up and down and that's it. And like you could end up with zero, y'all. Like, I You can end up with zero in debt, but it's a lot harder. I don't know. I just, yeah, it's, it also speaks to, there's like a demographic difference between bond and stock investors that when I started out, I certainly, um, like derived anecdotally where it wasn't super informed, but at first I was like, Oh, like these stock guys are a little annoying. Like there's no offense to everyone, but like the optimism doesn't actually translate well for like a young female journalist just trying to do her job, but also talk to sources. It was really annoying. But I found that bond guys were much more pessimistic and they just want to clip their coupon and go home. You know, like they're not going to the moon. They're not going to try for anything annoying or weird. Like they just are much more normal and uh, calculate risk reward better, which is to say they didn't hit on me and it was really nice. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I get it. No, I was, I, I definitely, I definitely think there's, there's, there's a big element of self-selection, totally. right? Sort of in the, and, and difference in mindset, like with venture capital Ooh. at one end, and then even, let's even go further in the bond market, like distressed investors, like distressed credit, which is like the ultimate yeah, zero so sum that, game. They do hit on you fight. because they're so like crammed down. They're like, I'm going to make it work, you know? And you're like, ah, like it's... I, love a lot of the guys I met in distressed debt and a lot of the women but like I will say the vibe is a lot more aggressive and I was like oh no my like beautifully constructed safe world where no one mistakes my role has broken so a little different but the, mm -hmm. that's the shark mm -hmm. tank right that's the on, on both sides of the uh and both ends of the spectrum yeah it becomes I mean that's an tank. equity risk functionally yeah. right so anyway <laughs> that's where yeah, debt becomes equity now that's a that's a good point yeah yeah though it's technically credit yeah that's that's a, good, that's a good point. I didn't even think about it that way. Well, but it's an equity that doesn't mm, grow, mm -hmm. typically. I mean, they're, you know, debatable case by case, blah, blah, blah. But, like, in general, right, you're sort of fighting a lot over how to slice up one pie versus venture. Yeah, but, I mean, if you got in with very – it's just like, so much a, like a us. much more irrational optimism by virtue of just sheer force of will, you know, and, like, bravado. And all of that's extremely funny yeah. and fun to cover. And now that I'm older, it might be more tolerable because I, you know, people know who I am to some extent or just are less likely to hit on an older woman <laughs> than a really young one. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure I like, you know, there are other things that have come into play, but it is it is easier, I think, now. Um, but it, yeah, it's just a, there's a lot of like it's just playing football, just trying to run into the next guy as hard as you can with with a, you know, I mean, structure. look, it <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, at this point, you have you have 
this, I mean, the book standing behind exactly. you in terms yeah. of just people, people should know who you are and also how you can, I don't want to say dish <laughs> out, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly, I'd, uh, I'd be careful to get oh, on your bad side. So, uh, <laughs> do, do, do you think you'll write another you one? You know, everyone assumes that I will. And I definitely had decided that it was, first of all, it was super not economically rational to undertake this project. It took me so long. The advance was not enough to make it worth it. Um, like I calculated how much it actually cost me to have written this book from, you know, my fact checking process to, you know, the actual hours that I spent. And it's like literally $1.6 million to write this book. So not my best investment that I've ever made, but at the same time, no, I, I think you're right. Like it does lend a bit of credibility and it is like a nice calling card in a very, you know, I, I wish I didn't spend seven years to create a calling card, but I, <laughs> let's, here we are, here we I've are. Done it. but I do think it is like, it's helpful in in just establishing a baseline of like okay i do know what i'm talking about to at least a little extent i can write 308 pages about it and yeah it's a good it's a good baseline and i do think it was um horrible but i think it could be more fun now that i know what i'm doing long-winded answer of my answer when i start like right when i finished was like i'd rather die than write another book literally kill me if i if you find me <laughs> writing another book like take me out but um now I'm warming to the idea a little. Don't let me do it. Still don't let me do it. But I don't know. Well, I mean, in in the meantime, like I, like I said in the beginning, I I thought the book was was uh, really not just really informative, but sort of walked the balance between um, educational and entertaining, right? Without veering into like let's make this about gossip or let's just make this about technical, like like you know bond trading. It's sort of a, a um, and like I said, I, I think there's a lot of the human drama that actually is about bigger themes about the this tension between the trading side the business side the individual and the large organization mortality like there's so many themes in it like and now that after this conversation i'm thinking about it, like there's so many you know just eternal themes that that that, that come out that i i highly recommend it i i think it's and I'm not like at home in the bond mm -hmm. market, so I, I certainly. It's, I'm glad you said that about all the themes because I forgot. How, like I never figured out how to tell people what my book was about. I know it's about the bond. I know that, but like I randomly was talking to Gloria Steinem one time, and she was like, "Oh, what's your book about?" And I was like, "Oh God!" And I forgot. I don't know. I just blacked out. I literally <laughs> forgot. forgot. And I was like, "This guy in the market, and he made a, a lot of money." I don't know what I said, but she was like, "Okay, like." Maybe you should call it the man who won too much, which I'm like, that's actually quite good, especially given the very limited information I gave her. But it is I, I thank you so much for saying all that, because I, I wanted to weave all these themes together. And I definitely at times was like, I've bitten off far more than I can chew here. But I'm so happy to hear that it was successful in some ways, in these ways. I uh, yeah, I, I totally definitely think so. And where. I mean, besides the book, which obviously I'll, I'll, I'll link to and, and um, encourage people to, to buy so that we make this a little bit more. I mean, some yes. cost at this point. I'm going right? to recoup at least $10 of it, you know? Yeah. It, it is what it is. Yeah. We just got to put yes, on a brave face yep. now. And, and uh, <laughs> um, But where else uh, can people um, sort of find you and, and follow you and learn more yeah. about the bond market? And so I'm characters. at um, Planet Money. I can do that without saying um. I'm at Planet Money on NPR. It's a twice-weekly economics podcast. Um, and I'm on Twitter at, at MDC and, you know, various other LinkedIn and Instagram, whatever. Um, yeah, I'm around. Not Instagram. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah, stick I don't to, really we'll stick to Twitter and, and Planet Money. It's like pictures money. of my dog. Yeah. But 
It's a good dog. Yeah, she's. Oh. Yeah. Well, actually, okay, then definitely Instagram. <laughs> definitely. Instagram. Exactly. Well, this this was Thank a lot you. of fun. Thanks so much for for taking the time and um, yeah, I'll I'll keep tweeting a few more quotes from Thank from the you. book, I which I think that. Is, is terrific and it's really fun and, to see what uh, resonates. Yeah. Like really fun because I've lived with this text for so long and I'm like, oh my god, people are reading it. Oh, and they like. So just seeing the parts that you that you really like that that means a lot to me. Thank you.